This podcast is brought to you by SMA, provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30-plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility-scale projects completed worldwide, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, visit www.sma-america.com. For the week of September 4th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome to the show. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I am Stephen Lacey, the senior editor at Green Tech Media. On this week's show, we will be talking about how the country's biggest property owner and energy consumer, the U.S. government, is cleaning itself up. We'll also have the latest on Hawaii's effort to both tame and encourage solar and look at the viability of solar roadways. Here to help me are my regular co-hosts. Catherine Hamilton is in Washington. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions. How's it going, Catherine? It's great. We've got a uh, we're finally getting summer in D.C. So just so that we'll appreciate it even more when Congress comes back. I'll take it. It won't last long. Uh, Jigger Shaw is with us in New York City as well. He's a partner with Clean Feet Investors. Hey, Jigger, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. All right. Well, don't forget, we will be doing a live show in Jigger's backyard in New York City on September 22nd at WNYC's Performance Space. New York Public Service Commissioner Audrey Zibelman will be there with Sergei Monhofsky, Con Edison's director of the Utility of the Future team, to talk about, yes, the utility of the future. Uh, rather than just hear us jabber on about it, we are going to talk with those two experts who are intimately involved with that process in New York. You can find out more, as always, at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, and we've linked to it in all of our recent episodes. Let us meet our guest this week. With us by phone from her office in San Francisco is Ruth Cox, the administrator for the Pacific Rim region at the General Services Administration. She is also GSA's Senior Sustainability Officer. Ruth, thanks for being here. How's it going out there in San Francisco? It's great, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Absolutely. I know you and Catherine knew each other. I think you worked together when uh, you were heading up the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association, correct? That's correct. We do, definitely. We were both um, executive directors of trade associations, which, as everyone knows, is a totally thankless job. And so I think we were both like extremely happy that we, we were able to uh, to parlay those positions into something else. And I'm extremely proud of Ruth. Well, for listeners outside the U.S. who might not know the GSA very well, it is the independent government agency that manages federal buildings, uh, transportation logistics, and all kinds of other tasks that help agencies function. They're in the Pacific Rim region. Uh, Ruth is managing around 36 million square feet of buildings, 100,000 employees, and more than a billion dollars worth of telecommunications, IT services, and other goods needed. So, Ruth, do you get any satisfaction knowing that you manage a portfolio that's double the size of Apple? Oh, my God, I hadn't realized, frankly. Um, 
I think I get a lot of satisfaction out of being able to implement the president's agenda in sustainability in both our lines of business at GSA, the public building service, which you mentioned, 36 million square feet in our region, uh, but also the billion-dollar supply chain and uh, all the efforts that we're undertaking to uh, to green that supply chain. So, um, yeah, I didn't realize that we were bigger than Apple, but I'll take it. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about today because Ruth is the person tasked with implementing President Obama's sustainability goals at GSA. And you can probably guess from my description of just the Pacific Rim region, that is a very big deal. The agency owns or leases more than 350 million square footage of buildings, which is the rough equivalent of half of Manhattan. In December of last year, President Obama issued an order requiring the government to get 20% of electricity from renewables by 2020, up from roughly 7% today. And that is in addition to requirements for energy savings, performance contracts, and more transparent use of data. So I guess we can only start off with one question. How's it all going so far? I mean, where do you logistically start within such a big portfolio? Well, I, I have to say that the program was well underway uh, long before I arrived. So um, uh, how they actually got started, I think, primarily was uh, due to the enthusiasm and commitment of the former administrator, uh, Martha Johnson, uh, who uh, was very, very committed to uh, to the sustainability initiative. But I think what it really comes down to is, um, you know, a couple of key uh, areas where you can focus, and um, and that has to do with the uh, energy efficiency of your buildings, access to clean uh, power, uh, and um, the fleet, uh, greening the fleet, and then you know working with our vendors uh, and our customers to ensure that uh, they're purchasing uh, sustainable products and services. How's it going? I think it's going extraordinarily well. Um, just on the clean power front, um, I think this year we're going to clock about 45% or more of our power coming from renewable sources. We have reduced our energy consumption uh, about 3% per year since this program began. I think their baseline year is 2007, uh, so we had a goal of 3% per year. Um, we're well, uh, I think we're about 25% uh, overall for um, GSA since baseline year, um, and uh, and we're continuing even during the very harsh winter. We had tremendous performance in our our buildings portfolio where we had made investments, uh, and then on the uh, front of uh, uh, procurement, uh, we had our very first uh, uh, procurement that used greenhouse gas emissions as a um, selection criteria this year, and that was with the domestic delivery service contract that uh, we ended up uh, signing, I think, with FedEx and, uh, and UPS. That's the very first time that we've done that. And more and more, we are building into our procurement vehicles requirements for reporting on greenhouse gas emissions, on use of uh, clean products and the delivery of services, um, and making it uh, easier for uh, our customers, the other federal agencies, to purchase um, uh, green products and services through those vehicles. So I think we're doing great. I'm very excited about it. So what's the breakdown of on-site projects, contracts, and then RECs? You know, I think a lot of people in the industry would be critical of the purchasing of RECs, considering all the concerns around additionality, whether or not REC prices are high enough that it would enable, they would make a, make or break a project or enable a developer to finance another project. And and at the same time, you know, the the PPAs, the price of electricity from these large-scale renewable energy projects and even on-site projects are getting so low. Are you seeing the shift 
from Rex to more uh, power purchase agreements or on-site projects. How does that break down for you? You know, I I couldn't give you the exact percentage right now um, uh, between what we're generating ourselves and what uh, we're purchasing with Rex, but I can say that we are uh, developing any number of initiatives to ensure that we are generating more clean power ourselves through ESPCs, through power purchase agreements. So um, we have uh, many different uh, ways that we are supporting uh, the generation of clean power. And so we'll catch up with the RECs. Uh, it's, it's in our sights. So, Ruth, you know, I have been following the super ESPC contracts in the government. And, you know, I think the Bush administration, before they left, awarded $80 billion of contracts, $5 billion each to 16 groups. I think the Obama administration's only deployed about $4.5 billion of that so far. What are the big challenges to getting all $80 billion out the door? I think that, um, well, you know, we did about 160 or $180 million last year, and I think we're going to do it about $150 million this year uh, in ESPC contracts. And I think that the challenge is just making sure that we have the uh, necessary expertise to oversee the implementation of all those programs. You have to understand that uh, the folks that are going to be uh, affected by this have a lot of other responsibilities in addition to the upgrades that we're going to make uh, for for energy efficiency or clean power generation. So I think one of the big challenges is making sure that we have the, the requisite expertise internally uh, to manage um, uh, these efforts because no matter how much expertise exists on the part of the ESPC, we're still accountable for the results that get delivered. And so there has to be enough manpower internally to oversee that effectively. So I think that's probably um, one of the challenges that, that we have. Um, but I, again, I feel like we've gotten really good traction uh, with the deployments that we have made, and we're, gonna, we're continuing to, uh, to invest at pretty high rates. And I, I don't see that diminishing over time. I think that you know, we'll continue to do that for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Ruth, I worked at the Federal Energy Management Program during the Clinton administration, and that was when the performance contracts had sort of just started up. And there was a massive undertaking to educate the contract officers who have to run the procurements, the facility managers, you know, people who wanted to do business with the federal government. It was an enormous undertaking. And then you had to bring the financial markets into it, the financial guys to say, all right, how are we going to do a project? And to move from what we were doing then, which was just replacing incandescent lights with fluorescent lights, to now having a whole host of really sophisticated technologies. And you can speak to some of what the new technologies are and the new communication systems to bundle those into the packages makes for um, more complex and yet more holistic and more cost savings approach. So I would love to hear more about sort of the technology piece of this. Well, and I think your point is, is well taken. You know, there, the, the ability to absorb all of this uh, and actually put the money to work, it is a process. And I think that a lot of the groundwork uh, that was laid uh, in the Clinton administration through the Bush administration is now starting to manifest in the uh, Obama administration in us being able to put that capital to work and start to reap the benefits. And we have done, uh, we had the advantage of, of ARA funding uh, for those years that the, the ARA funds became available, I think starting in 2009. And we invested 
I don't know, five and a half billion dollars, I think, as an agency on new buildings, you know, that had to perform uh, uh, in an energy efficient way and, and deployment of, of clean power as a part of that process and upgrades to buildings. And, you know, we're now just getting the benefits of that. And it took several years for those uh, uh, projects to be planned and uh, and implemented and, and for us to get those results. So it's just doesn't happen overnight. It's not something you can do with a with a key. But getting to your point about technology, one of the things that GSA has done is implemented a program called the Green Proving Ground. And the Green Proving Ground is our uh, way of um, putting uh, new technologies to work in, in collaboration with the uh, uh, Department of Energy labs and um, you know the vendor community themselves. Uh, testing these uh, technologies out, doing a formal evaluation of the results uh, that we get from it, and then identifying the characteristics that made them successful, looking for those characteristics in other uh, parts of our portfolio, and then doing broad-scale deployments of, um, of those uh, technologies. And we've, we've been doing that for a number of years now, um, and I think that we've, uh, we've gained a great deal of experience with lighting systems, advanced lighting systems. Uh, we, you know, um, are now deploying uh, some advanced LED lighting systems that I think are going to prove to be uh, very effective. Um, we've uh, experimented with different uh, forms of um, HVAC systems, cooling towers, all kinds of uh, uh, new ways to uh, cool air uh, that doesn't require a tremendous amount of water. One of the new uh, projects that we're working on is, is going to reduce the amount of water that's necessary for uh, cooling air, which is important for us in, in, in California. So I think, you know, across the board, we've been uh, working hard to uh, uh, show the value of investments um, in these technologies and make them uh, available for broad-scale deployment. So I think it's one of the distinctions between what we do, uh, let's say, and what I see happening oftentimes uh, in the military, uh, the military's program. Um, we try uh, to focus on those technologies that are, that are ready for or are near ready for commercial deployment because we want to be able to put them to work right away after we've gone through um, the green proving ground with them. This brings us to a question about government as first customer. And the green proving ground that you have is very interesting. And it's four technologies that are close to commercial scale that have been proven but need a little bit more testing and areas that can make an impact immediately. We've talked about ARPA-E's role, for example, with much earlier scale technologies. And is there a role both within the military and across a variety of other agencies to put in place a structure where you work with the DOE on some of procuring some of these early stage technologies? And I know there are a lot of challenges here in terms of interagency coordination, budgets, um, the actual viability of the technologies themselves. But beyond the green proving ground, could you ever see a scenario where the government truly is the first customer on a broader scale for some up-and-coming stuff? Well, I think the government has been. I mean, uh, with embryonic technologies in the past, I mean, you don't have to look past um, GPS systems or fuel cells, for that matter, uh, to see where the government has been uh, extremely early in the adoption of, uh, of uh, breakthrough technologies. Um, I think that, you know, our role in the Green Proving Ground was to take technologies and literally put them in an operational environment where you got more realistic uh, experience with them. You know, instead of uh, testing out technologies in more of a laboratory environment, this is a real-world operating environment, and I think the, 
um, as I described earlier, you can get some results and understand, you know, what are the factors that go into um, getting a positive result from uh, using those technologies, look for those factors elsewhere in our portfolio and deploy them rather rapidly and, um, and, and be able to get the best return on our investment in that way. Having said that, I do know that the Green Proving Ground has from time to time brought some embryonic technologies into um, into their efforts. And so, you know, what we do is we have a process of going out with an RFI uh, to the, the vendor community uh, looking for technologies in areas where we know we need to make improvements. And then we go into a process of evaluating those technologies look, uh, for the ones that are going to give us the best uh, return uh, for our investment, uh, go through a test with them, uh, have the labs involved to uh, evaluate uh, the results of those tests and then, um, you know, look for ways to deploy them. And in some cases, you know, it has been fairly early in the process, and, um, and products have evolved as a consequence of, the, of what we've learned in, in, in using them. Um, but I think that given the nature of what we do as an agency in operating, you know, uh, and managing those 360 million square feet of office space for the federal government, um, we, the bulk of our efforts need to be on technologies that we can rapidly deploy subsequent to testing. It's just the way it is. And so I think you'll see the military um, and, and ARPA-E and other parts of the government uh, where it's more appropriate uh, get more involved with those embryonic technologies and helping, and helping them get um, developed to a point where they can be taken by a green proving ground and shown how they operate in a real-world environment. And that feeds better into what Jigger was talking about with performance contracting. Those are those are then then become technologies that you can then roll into a performance contract. So we're talking to a business audience here, people in the clean tech industry that want to see this stuff move forward. But for the broader American taxpayer out there, people who aren't following this, people who might be skeptical of green investments that the government is making, can you look to the taxpayer? and say that what we're doing is going to save money and is cost-effective. Yes, and we have. And we've saved almost $300 million uh, in just in power, cost power savings um, since we started implementing these programs. So, uh, you know, the answer is, I think, absolutely yes. And when it comes to renewable power procurement, beyond efficiency, can you say that you can sign projects for perhaps cheaper than you could get it from uh, conventional sources? We are um, required to make sure that we are buying at parity or below uh, what the uh, commercial availability of, of power is um, mm. with any kind of power purchase agreement. So uh, we are under a tremendous amount of scrutiny, as you can well imagine, in making these decisions. And so uh, we put a lot of effort into making sure that we are in compliance with those requirements when, when we make these investments. Well, Ruth Cox is the Chief Sustainability Officer for the GSA and the Regional Administrator for GSA's Pacific Rim Region. We appreciate uh, the work that you're doing over there, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, let's get a word in here about our sponsor, SMA. A properly maintained solar plant can increase yield up to 30%. Maximize production and accelerate your investment payback with SMA's operations and maintenance service, including 24-7 remote monitoring for commercial and utility-scale PV plants. 
O&M offerings from SMA are scalable to fit your business model and are backed by the industry's number one service team. Uncover the full potential of your PV system with SMA Service. You can find out more about SMA Service by going to sma-america.com. Okay, on to our second topic. We are going to stay in the Pacific Rim for our next story, which comes out of Hawaii. In May, Hawaiian Electric Company, known as HECO, which operates three utilities in the state, was slammed by regulators for failing to craft a plan for a reliable distributed grid. The Public Utilities Commission gave it four months to come up with a comprehensive strategy for integrating more solar, demand response, and storage, while also proposing changes to net metering to account for grid costs and study the impact of DG on overloaded circuits. Late last month, HECO came back with its plan, which would triple solar in the state by 2030, while also creating a new procurement process for batteries by 2017. It's a huge improvement, but it also worried a lot of solar companies and customers in the state who would potentially be hit with new connection charges between $16 and $55 a month under the plan. Needless to say, the industry is split on the proposal. Uh, Jigger, we'll go to you on this. How do you interpret HECO's plan? On one hand, it would uh, help clear the interconnection queue for solar, which is a really good thing, which is built up on some islands. Uh, it would bring in more storage and potentially establish rules for smart inverters that could um, help increase penetration on overloaded circuits. But then there's this thorny fixed charge issue that needs to be sorted out and is pretty high given what P- uh, HECO has proposed. What are your thoughts on the plan? I just think HECO is plain screwed. You know, I think when you think about what's happening in Hawaii, the average person in Hawaii spends $4,000 per year for oil. That's the import cost for Hawaii. It's about $5 billion a year. At $4,000 a year, think about what we could amortize with all the yield codes and stuff that we have. We could give them solar PV, advanced energy efficiency, battery storage. We could take people off the grid at you know 36 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour, which is what people are paying. I just think Hawaii is not taking their predicament seriously, and I think it's going to take entrepreneurs like us to basically take them to the point of um, – you know, desperation to be able to get them to take this seriously. Well, which means what exactly? So under HECO's plan, let's say HECO gets what it wants and it slaps a fixed charge on everyone for 50 or 60 bucks and then plus an additional DG fee of 12 to $16. I think that when the negotiations actually happen with the PUC, that's not going to happen. But still, let's assume that that the fixed charges are that high. That decimates the economics of solar. How is HECO going to get decimated under that scenario? Well, first of all, it does not decimate the economics of solar. We can actually afford to pay 20 bucks a month in fixed fees, maybe even 30 bucks a month, and still make the numbers work for six kilowatt solar systems in Hawaii. But second of all, if you actually just add battery storage, and particularly with the advent of electric vehicles, because Hawaii pays a much higher price for gasoline and diesel as well. So if you add electric vehicles as well, you can start to take people off grid. And it's not surprising to me if SolarCity and Tesla actually roll that out pretty soon. I just think that these guys are not thinking clearly about how fast we're innovating on the finance side, such that, you know, because the technologies are all there. That's not the issue. The issue is whether we can finance these folks in a portfolio basis. And we're so damn close to being able to do that. 
I think that the uh, regulators are really serious about this. Um, I know Commissioner Champley has been really looking seriously at all the energy storage projects, and they do have energy storage out there. And then uh, Commissioner Akiba, I've worked with quite a bit. And, I mean, basically what's going on out there is that they're changing the tires while the car is moving. This stuff is happening so quickly and in such real time that um, utilities are – they're really nervous about trying to put things on the grid that aren't going to work well enough, that aren't going to be safe enough. You know, there was an extreme uh, power battery that caught fire at one point. And I think um, while they want to do things and maybe jigger they don't move as fast as they should, I think they are taking this really seriously. And let's remember here that this is a negotiating document. So now the PUC has to consider this. Think about what APS proposed. APS wanted to put a $50 per month fee uh, on owners of solar systems, and it ended up getting $5 per month. That's what the Arizona Corporation Commission approved. So this is very much up in the air. And as you said, Catherine, I think that the commissioners there in Hawaii are very progressive about this. And this actually, the plan itself... Forget the details, just the fact that it was put together, I think, is an illustration of the power of the regulatory vision there. Because when the HECO utilities came back with their integrated resource plans that were really inadequate, the regulators just shut them down. They said, no, this is not good enough. We need a real transition plan here to get us to lots of solar in a fair way. Do it that makes the grid actually responsive. We need more advanced inverter Uh, rules. We want more storage. And we're seeing that unfold, although the details in this plan are not making people in the solar industry very happy. We're seeing the initial vision here, which is pretty comprehensive and now creates a negotiating platform because of what the regulators demanded from the utilities. Yeah, I think this is just the first cut for the utilities. So they'll be taking comments and this, this won't be the final version. Yeah, look, I agree with the negotiating tactics, and I agree completely that the regulators are in the right here, and they're the ones pushing folks. What I don't agree with is the timeline. I mean, you know, I think when you think about where financing costs are for solar right now, we can actually cut the cost of electricity without batteries to residential consumers by 50% right now in Hawaii, 50%. And so now when you're at a 50% savings, we can afford 30 bucks a month in fees and still be profitable. It's not a big deal. And so I just think that these guys are just not thinking through how quickly the death spiral is going to come to them right to their doorstep. I just think by 2020, if this, if this company is not bankrupt, I'd be shocked. <laughs> but let's remember, like on, o- on Oahu, they're proposing – using or actually on all the islands they're proposing using wholesale rates rather than retail rates for compensation so on Oahu it would be 16 cents a kilowatt hour which is a 50% drop off from current retail compensation then you have fixed fees on top of that then if you have a battery storage system in 2017 you've got a feed-in tariff that is potentially much lower we haven't seen what the rate structures will be but it would definitely be lower so I'm not ready to jump to the same conclusion you are, Jigger. I do agree with both of you that this stuff is happening far faster than HECO is saying in this document, but not quite ready to say that HECO is totally screwed. There's a lot of factors in here that they control that could certainly influence the medium-term economics of some of these systems. Look, if I'm paying $0.37 a kilowatt hour for my power, 
There's no way you can reimburse me at 16 cents. It's complete bullshit. And ultimately, when you think about where people can go, I absolutely right now could finance a solar with battery system to take people off grid for less than 37 cents a kilowatt hour right now. And there's no way that the Supreme Court of Hawaii would, you know, would usurp my right to exit the grid. That is an, a fundamental American right that they could not force me to pay a disconnection charge. Remember, they have a lot of utility scale, too. So they have a lot of wind as well. And so it's it's not just rooftop solar. Yeah. And I didn't see anything about disconnection charges in here. Uh, I'm just simply talking about grid tied battery and solar systems. But like, let's talk about this fairness ish- fairness issue. I totally agree. I don't think it's fair to hold solar customers hostage. But at the same time, we have to recognize the very real costs that these utilities are incurring. And so there are some facts in here in this report, this interconnection report that HECO put together. And they said that total installed DG exceeds the single largest generator on each island, which was quite fascinating to me. And then HECO claims that the annualized shift in cost is around $38.5 million to non-solar customers across all the, the, the islands. So this is something that we have to address here. And it's not just customers should be able to do what they want. I agree that we need to create rules to allow customers to participate in this market, but there are some very real grid costs that we've been talking about in many episodes past that need to be addressed. And so but, the but middle you can't here, fundamentally think that way. The customer is always right. To suggest for a moment that the customer can be denied access to technology that exists from private sources while people are sorting themselves out is ludicrous. I just think that it the, forget about solar for a second, right? Just focus on energy efficiency. I think if you took the reinventing fire book from Amory Lovins, we could absolutely cut another 25% of all the energy consumption in Hawaii just through energy efficiency. Think about what that would do to the economics of power and and fixed costs in Hawaii. It would drive their costs up by another 25%. This goes back to a much broader problem than Hawaii. Utilities have always controlled the centralized systems. Customers have never had individual technology choice like this. And inevitably, you're going to have to create these hard negotiating tactics if you're the utility. They've never seen anything like this before. And so it's natural that they're going to fight this customer shift. I'm not saying it's right, but it's sort of understandable to me why the utility would take this type of negotiating tactic. I can understand the context, right? But it's important to note, though, that like when you say you're not saying that it's right, are you saying that it's wrong? I mean, this is fundamentally wrong. It's morally wrong to go to these people and say, we are going to completely screw up your household budget. Your income hasn't moved one iota since 1999, according to President Obama's speeches. But your electricity bill has tripled. And we're not going to give you any options whatsoever to figure out how to control that cost for your budget. That's ridiculous. And it's un-American. But I think from the utilities perspective, they see additional solar without universal fees as adding additional costs to the people that don't have solar. Obviously, that's the argument of the utilities in every state now. So I think they see they're arguing the exact same thing that you're arguing, but just from a completely different perspective. They think it's unfair to all the other people who don't have solar. Right. But they're a for profit company. It's not my responsibility to care what they think. There's actually, you know, a law of supply and demand. There's Schumpeter's creative destruction. What happens to them happens to them. Investors have taken that risk. But for an individual homeowner whose electricity bills have tripled in just the past 10 years, 
who can't figure out how to actually raise their income because wages have stagnated on the island. It's ridiculous. These families probably are paying an additional $5,000 per average family in Hawaii today compared to what they were paying 10 years ago. There is no way to say to them that we are going to deny you access to save any money off that $5,000 because it hurts the electric utility company, which is an investor-owned private sector company. So this is going to then fall – because the utilities are regulated. This is going to fall on the regulators and possibly the legislature as well uh, to come up with you know, what is the utility going to be able to make back. Right. And it's the same answer as you had with GM and everybody else. You have a managed bankruptcy. You wipe out the entire equity of the entire company, which is what Eric Wessoff was trying to do with that group um, that was trying to buy HEI. You buy out HEI and you actually restructure the debt. You build underground power lines between all the islands. You connect the geothermal from the big island. This has all been done. Let's be clear. We paid for this study to be done in 2005 and 2007 under the Energy Policy Act. The U.S. government paid for the study to be completed. They just can't get themselves to actually implement the study that they paid for. Well, like we said, this is the very beginning of the negotiations, and I will be very interested to see how the PUC pushes back on this. And like we saw in Arizona, just because a utility proposes high fixed charges certainly does not mean that they're going to get them. Just a quick wrap up here. Like there are, I think in the near term, we're not talking about radical changes. In fact, we're talking about good changes. So in some areas, they're going to increase the minimum PV threshold on overloaded circuits from 120% to 150%. They're establishing new rules for advanced inverters. And I know that, that the inverter manufacturers are working with the, the utility to try to figure out the best standards, um, particularly in areas that are overloaded. Uh, and then you won't see any real net metering changes until 2017. And that's when it gets murkier in the midterm, when you could see some of these fixed charges, depending on what the PUC decides, and a new feed-in tariff rate for systems paired with solar. And then, of course, long-term, this is what we're talking about, perhaps more grid defection. I mean, I think that's a very real possibility. If you look at RMI's analysis of the economics of storage and solar in Hawaii, it's there. And Morgan Stanley warned that fixed charges in many states could push the economics of grid defection and force more people off of the grid or partially off of the grid. And I think that this is a very real scenario in Hawaii now with uh, these proposals. I just think that people should be scared. They should be very scared. There is not two sides to this story. There's only one side, the voter. And whatever the voter says wins. If HEI doesn't change really, really fast, the voters will make sure that the politicians and the regulators that are in place are people that will totally destroy them. And I think this notion that there's this two sides and everyone's rational, no one's ever rational in this thing. This is mob law. And my sense is if these guys don't figure out how to help the consumer in Hawaii very, very quickly, they're absolutely going to be overrun. All right, let's wrap up the show with a discussion about solar roadways. I'm sure many of our skeptical listeners are rolling their eyes right now, wondering why we're giving attention to a technology that seems so unrealistic or unneeded, but we just can't ignore it. Uh, a little background quickly, solar roadways is a concept envisioned by two electrical engineers in Idaho, Scott and Julie Brusa, who wanted to create reinforced solar panels 
with LEDs to replace roads and highways. The concept has been roundly criticized as unrealistic, if not impossible. But Solar Roadways has gotten a couple grants from the Department of Transportation to test their panels. They got some money from a GE crowdsourcing contest, and they actually have some prototypes as a result. No one outside of the energy tech world was paying any attention to this until Solar Roadways started this Indiegogo campaign earlier this year and released a sensationalistic video touting the technology's potential. After the company raised $2.2 million from individuals, the idea broke into the mainstream. And in fact, after that, I had multiple friends and family members ask me about it. So I wanted to wait to actually cover this until I could talk to the DOT engineer, Eric Weaver, who actually tested it. And uh, I finally did a couple weeks ago when he was ready to chat about it publicly and wrote a story last week about his thoughts, and I'll provide more detail as we discuss this. But really to sum up his thoughts, he said it was just not realistic to put them on roads. They don't know enough about performance and safety, but he could potentially see them on sidewalks or other low-impact environments. Um, Catherine, I'll go to you on this one. Just I want to hear your thoughts. How do you think about a technology like solar roadways, which is so unrealistic but oddly compelling to many people? First of all, their video that the guy kept screaming, solar freaking roadways, was the most annoying thing I've ever heard. I wanted to take a machine gun and shoot their sample roadway. It got them $2.2 $2 million. <laughs> I watched his TEDx talk, um, and it was it was really compelling because this is like a guy who has a vision, and he's, and he's trying to do too much with it. He's trying to put everything in the world into this one vision. But, you know, that's how we get incremental changes. Somebody has a big vision and then we're able to make some changes. So I actually have enjoyed learning about it. I would never contribute based on that dumb video, but you know, I, I think it's a pretty interesting concept. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Eric Weaver, and I actually met him way back earlier this year when we did our live podcast at the Department of Transportation. We chatted a little bit and he said he'd be ready to talk in August uh, after the second round of testing was done. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to him and tell that story is because a lot of people think it's a scam, right? That they put together this sensationalistic video, that they were asking for money, and they're going to go and create no products. Well, the government has tested it. They're, the evidence is inconclusive, but they're working with a bunch of universities. They have two prototypes. It could be, It's wildly unrealistic for a lot of the applications they're talking about, but there there is some potential here for... Uh, use cases in low-impact environments that I found a little bit fascinating. With that said, I'm very skeptical about the vision that Scott and Julie have laid out, but I wanted people to know that like, this is not a scam per se. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that the the concept of solar freaking roadways was amazing in a couple of places, right? One is that um, they actually did a really good job of viral marketing, and the solar industry could learn a lot from these guys. We don't have a lot of good viral videos. So hopefully people can start to copy some of the marketing schemes that they created here. The second is they really do believe in their vision. I think it's crazy. I don't see how you could ever keep the glass that, you know, is is on the on the solar cells there clean. I don't see how it could actually keep up with the abrasive nature of of ro- of, of of car travel. I mean, I, th- I think it's widely unrealistic, but I think the government should provide 100000 to $500,000 to these types of ideas to be able to let people do really interesting projects because a lot of other good ideas come out of it 
even if it's not for solar freaking roadways, maybe it's for something else. So I don't have a problem with government dollars being used this way as long as it's reasonable. And I think these guys did a fantastic job. I don't think we're going to see it in, on our local road near me. But I still think it's a great thing that the solar industry should learn from. Yeah, and I actually think they could probably take some of what they're trying to do, which is a lot of things at one time, and try to kind of parse it a little bit so that you can do some things, whether it's LED lighting on the road, in the roads, or some kind of a snow management system. I think it's just try- they're just trying to do it all at once. Yeah. Well, I'll walk through some of the concerns that Eric described to me. You know, they've they've said that it's inconclusive how safe this technology is for roadway traffic. Uh, they would need a lot, a third round of testing, maybe a fourth round of testing for in-field evaluation to determine whether it's safe or not. And they just haven't gotten any conclusive tests. So Solar Roadways has done some university testing, but um, and they've said that they can stop a vehicle going 80 miles per hour on these on this textured glass surface but the DOT is not ready to weigh in. Uh, they also have this important piece of equipment uh, that they use to t- test load uh, impact, and they weren't able to get it up to Idaho, and, where Scott and Julie have built their prototype. So they don't really know what the impact will be uh, with equipment up to 16,000 pounds. And I showed a picture in this story of Scott driving his tractor over it. Like They've written some pieces of equipment over it and to show that the glass holds up, but we just have no idea. And then, of course, there's materials availability, which was a big issue when they were designing the prototype. They couldn't get the plastics on time. They needed really big circuit boards, and no one was making circuit boards that big, so they had to cut them into four sections and then assemble them on site. Um, It was very tough for them, and they saw months and months of delay just because of the unique nature of the materials that they need. One could imagine that the the maintenance issues associated with these panels would be ridiculously high. You know, um, Steve and I contacted the Intelligent Transportation Society of America um, to find out they're having their World Congress coming up this for the next week in Detroit, the World Congress on Intelligent Transportation. And I wanted to find out if they knew anything about this and if they were going to highlight anything like it. And they are, you know, they're doing driverless cars, uh, traffic management center working right there in the center, um, connected vehicles. So they didn't know anything about this, but it doesn't seem like it's something that's too far off from being highlighted at some point if they you know, if they can prove out some of this and get some more funding to to, to become part of uh, the conversation. Yeah, they're going to have some demonstration projects in 2015 in Sandpoint where they're located, and they're going to do a sidewalk like the side of an airport tarmac and a couple of other places where they will monitor the energy production in real time and put it out on the web so that people can see what they're up to. And uh, I have to say, Eric Weaver's response really amazed me. I expected him to shut it down, but he said, I'm skeptical that this could ever work on highways, but if you don't try, you're never going to know what kind of products that you'll get out of it. And perhaps there's all these other interesting low-impact environments that could be that could be suitable for this technology. And I really like that attitude because he's a realist when it comes to what the technology offers, but he's thinking a high enough level that can motivate inventors like Scott and Julie Broussard to actually do something bigger. And, and, you know, I'm all for that. I agree. I mean, hats off to those guys. I think they've accomplished a ton. I've actually learned a lot about marketing and viral marketing and how this stuff works. And I do think that, you know, the asphalt and the highways of our 
country are a complete waste of time and money and space and there's no property taxes coming from them, et cetera. If we could figure out how to use that space much more effectively, even the sides of the roads and all the right of ways and other things, I think that's great. So small government grants to get folks thinking about how to use that resource more um, effectively is fantastic. Yeah, and as annoyed as I was with their ad, um, because I know you guys don't agree with me on that, um, it was still sparked the imagination, and it gets it gets young people thinking about it. All right, time to close out the show. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, lay it on us. So, guys, you probably uh, notice if you comment on greentechmedia.com when we do podcasts that uh, Jigger is really great about engaging with commenters, and I am not. I am. I think I've answered one ever, and it was a very specific question, and I was scared anyway when I answered it. So I'm just not one of the people who engage. I'm completely um, you know, non-confrontational. That said, um, I did think about a comment that somebody said that we were all on the same side of the Bill Gates argument. And I just wanted to make the point that, yes, we actually are all on the same side of clean energy and clean tech being important. And we may come at things differently on what technologies work, what policies work, what business models work, um, and whether utilities are dying or not. But honestly, we're all still on that. And I and I hope that people continue to we've gotten great feedback. I hope people continue to listen, people continue to learn and that we can present something that's slightly different than what you would read in the you know typical news feeds that you get. Well, and I think if people actually think that all three of us agree on all the topics, they're not listening to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I just mean that we are actually all pro clean energy. It's just that we come at it from different directions. Here, here. Jigger, what do you got this week? So for those of you who followed the vote in Austin, um, it was truly groundbreaking. Um, so Austin Energy has this ridiculously energy inefficient and polluting plant called the Decker um, Energy Plant, which is natural gas powered. Um, to replace it with another natural gas powered plant would cost between $85 and $90 a megawatt hour. Um, Austin Energy just mandated, sorry, Austin City Council just mandated that Austin Energy get 600 megawatts of additional solar power uh, from, uh, you know, sorry, power from solar to offset this. And just to put that in perspective, the entire state of Texas only generates 185 megawatts of solar power on a utility level right now. So it's really extraordinary to see Austin take this step. And I really think that this is going to be a uh, a domino effect, and you're going to see many other cities do the same thing that control their municipal utility. A lot of people thought that there might be a motion to dismiss the proposal the following day. They had a vote, but it failed. So the proposal and plan is upheld to uh, the chagrin of Austin Energy, which has been very progressive, but I think was very worried about such a huge target solar target increase. Well, but Austin Energy was really only progressive under Roger Duncan. I mean, since Larry Weiss has taken over, they've gone backwards. So, I mean, they've been forced to do certain wind and solar procurements just because the numbers are so much in our favor. But he really wants to take the you know utility back to the 20, 20th century. Uh, speaking of the 21st century, I'm going to talk about uh, Elon Musk. And I guess my stories should be like classified, tell me something I already know, because the Tesla Gigafactory has been in the news so much, uh, but I couldn't let this one slip because it's so current. So at 4 p.m. Eastern time today, 
probably by the time this podcast actually goes out, Tesla is going to officially announce that it's going to build its 10 million square foot gigafactory for lithium ion batteries in Nevada. And uh, Musk says at full production, they're going to be able to drop the cost of batteries by about 30%. And I think that it's going to employ more than 6,000 workers in construction and operation in the state. So uh, Nevada is going to give Tesla around a half a billion dollars or about 10% of the cost to build the plant. And uh, also I learned that Tesla reportedly chose Nevada because of the proximity of a lithium mine. Uh, Interestingly, though, like not everyone's excited about the deal. There's been a lot of frustration about the negotiations between the governor, between Harry Reid, and between uh, Elon Musk. Lack of transparency, they're claiming. The Nevada legislature could go into a special session to approve the deal, which has angered a lot of people on both the right and the left who say they they can't even get a special session to deal with education and other important issues, but it's going to happen for a big company. So we could we expected some of these politics but politics aside this is just a huge piece of news and uh i guess not politics aside because it happens to correspond nicely with harry reed's energy summit happening this week which probably isn't an accident so we're going to throw in this into a broader discussion about ev sales next week but i just couldn't pass this show without mentioning this enormous piece of news. Yeah, it's huge. My husband is out there at the uh, Harry Reid Energy Confab, and he said that Reid is just absolutely giddy today. I bet he is. That is the show for this week. You can always read more about the stories we covered at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, where we provide links to news items and reports that we chat about don't forget to write a review for the podcast tweet us out facebook us subscribe to us do anything you can to spread the word i've heard people at different companies are emailing around to all their colleagues telling them to listen to the show if you work at a company and you haven't told your colleagues about it do it it will really help us out and i think a lot of people get value out of it from what we hear thanks very much to our sponsor sma Uh, We appreciate their support, and thanks to you for listening. Your support is absolutely crucial. Catherine, talk to you soon. Next Monday, in fact, we are recording a bit earlier than usual, so I guess I'll talk to you in a few days. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. You too. And there will be no shortage of news between now and then, so we'll have a good show. Jigger, we'll talk to you then as well. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.